Welcome to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Today I'm having a conversation with Riley Hott, uh, who is a member of a group, a really quite new climate action group called Climate Defiance, and um, is from West Virginia, and so is sort of, which is ground zero for a lot of destructive uh, kinds of energy. and we're going to talk about some of the things that you've been doing and uh, where you see things heading. I think that's a really important piece of the conversation. So welcome to the show, Riley. Thank you so much for having me. Excited to talk about it. Yeah. So just start out by telling us, uh, you know, you're a young person, um, and I know you have a lot of concerns about the climate and, and uh, your future. <laughs> So um, tell us how you, uh, how long you've been involved in, in climate action and, and when you got involved in climate defiance. And, and if you could sort of, it almost defines itself, <laughs> I think, with a name like that. But it, tell us, um, you know, what climate defiance is all about. Yeah, so Climate Defiance is a new youth-led org focused on using mass direct action to confront the climate crisis. Um, And so my first climate action was actually in April of 2022 at the coal plant where Senator Manchin makes half a million dollars a year from the trucking company that ships coal waste to one of the dirtiest plants in the East Coast, and that's in uh, near Fairmont, West Virginia. And so I actually met the co-founder of Climate Defiance, Michael, at the Colbert blockade. Um, It was the first climate action that I'd ever heard of happening in West Virginia. And I had uh, a long journey for about a year before that advocating for the Freedom to Vote Act um, with UNPAC, another youth-led org. And I had been on a 23-day hunger strike for the Freedom to Vote Act, a bill that Senator Manchin co-sponsored and failed to pass. So it kind of came at at just the perfect moment where I saw how direct action was more powerful um, as far as the Freedom to Vote Act goes. And it seemed to align really well with with kind of my fears and anxieties and why I was driven to take action. Being from the Mid-Ohio Valley, like you mentioned, um, being from West Virginia, which is a hot spot for so many destructive projects. And I, I literally live among the river and road in the river where DuPont has been dumping C8 into our water since the 90s. And so, yeah, I, I was just really inspired to see direct action confronting Mansion, especially. So that's how I sort of got plugged in. And then Michael reached out to me in around February of this year and let me know what the plans were and had me start off by helping out making some TikTok videos and yeah, now I'm a recruitment lead and have been doing direct action after direct action since around March. Wow. Well, we're going to pursue that that direction, but I just have to ask you, there aren't many people in the country or the world who have done a 23-day hunger strike. So, um, I mean, how did you even come to that point of doing that? And th- was this... I mean, hunger strikes are defined differently. Were you consuming juices or water only or eating at a certain time of day? Or, you know, how, how strict was your hunger strike? 
Yeah, so it was a cumulative 23 days. So in December of 2021, um, we were really worried that the voting rights legislation was just going to get swept under the rug. And at this point, we had done, we had ran the largest canvassing operation in West Virginia history. We knocked over 70,000 doors statewide. Um, we proved that there was a mass majority of support across party lines for the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, this bill would have given us Election Day uh, as a federal holiday, which I couldn't believe that it wasn't already. When I found that out, I was like, whoa. Um, it would have exposed dark money in politics. It would have ended partisan gerrymandering. It would have been huge, absolutely huge. And so I, at the moment after January 6th happened, I was like, something's got to give, you know? Like, I don't know if the people who are, are truly fighting for, for a democracy have the same, like, visceral drive that these people who are enacting violence are. And so, yeah, basically starting with unpack you know I, I did everything that you're supposed to do as i said uh in the video where i actually got to confront mansion this year but um we did petitions uh i spoke at rallies we helped pass resolutions through both wvu and marshall's sga um, student governments in support of the freedom to vote act we did everything like and beyond really and it was all led by young people and not once did mansion meet with us himself and so we were just getting really worried it seemed that cinema and mansion were probably just going to to let the filibuster determine whether or not we got voting rights so essentially we decided against a lot of people's uh, in our coalition, like the democracy coalition, like people were telling us, don't do this, do not go on hunger strike, like you're gonna piss Mansion and Cinema off and then they're definitely not gonna do it. And we were like, that's a bunch of bull. Like we know that in the past, young people taking nonviolent direct action has been always what is the tipping point for, for real change. It, time and time again, like what more do we have to show for it other than just opening a history book? So we decided against a lot of people's wishes to go on hunger strike and did it for 15 days in December, starting out in Arizona. We met with Senator Cinema on day three uh, or day four. And she was just like giving us all the, you young people, you know, you're so smart and you're doing what needs to be done and blah, blah, blah. And I support voting rights. And we were like, okay, but will you end the filibuster in order to pass this? and she would not give us a straight answer. So she basically hinted, please go tell Biden. So we did, we pulled up to the White House, we took a flight the next day and moved our hunger strike to DC on literally the hardest day to take a four hour flight. I remember just being in miserable pain on day five. Um, and after like day seven, my body just kind of like chilled out a little bit and I felt like I could keep going forever. Um, but yeah, it was water only. We had a medic checking our vitals in the morning and the evenings. Um, we tried to keep it really chill and not burn any calories. At the very beginning, we had wheelchairs to conserve as much of our energy as possible. And yeah, it was, I mean, I was just drinking a lot of Propel, basically, and chewing a lot of gum. I did chew a lot of gum at a certain point. Um, and so we ended on day 15 because the Senate went on recess, but we were like, you know, this isn't the end for us. And if you don't pass this by Martin Luther King day, like we will be back. And so we did, we went back for another eight days and we hunger striked in front of the Capitol. I was arrested two times um, 
on the Senate steps. And then another time, uh, Congressman Bowman joined us, which was huge. And sadly, the bill did not pass. Um, but I remember distinctly during the second hunger strike finding out that Chuck Schumer himself had told Senator Mark Kelly, who told our hunger strikers, that they would not have brought the Freedom to Vote Act back to the floor in January if it weren't for us. They said that straight out. And so that was kind of like a big light bulb moment, like direct action works. And apparently it's the only thing that does because we got 70,000 people canvassed in West Virginia, mass majority who said, yeah, let's do this and took action and called Manchin in support of it. And if that won't do the trick, and it takes 23 days of, of hunger striking, like, I'll do it. That's how resolved I felt in that moment. And I don't, like, regret it at all. I don't think everybody needs to go on hunger strike. <laughs> Although I do think it was really powerful for me, even just personally. Um, but I do think direct action really works. And I think that's a big catalyst to why I ended up joining Climate Defiance. Right. Okay, good. So just tell us a little more about how Climate Defiance came to be and uh, maybe some of the initial actions that you were involved in. Yeah, so I was there from day one. Um, the day before our official launch was our first action and we disrupted a speech by the climate advisor, the White House climate advisor, Ali Zaidi. Um, he was speaking at CSIS. CSIS. Um, important to note that one of their biggest donors is a fossil fuel company. CSIS is, is what? It's Center for Strategic and International Studies. Okay. Um, so it's just one of those like think tanks that a lot of these uh, people in positions of power will go and speak to business people, and they they call us uh, stakeholders, not like you know constituents or citizens or people. We're just stakeholders. Um, so yeah, we've been to a lot of these events where it's somebody being platformed who is touting um, and very much greenwashing their climate initiatives, especially from the Biden administration. Um, you know, just saying like he's the, taken the most action on climate in history, which like that's true, but it's still not getting us anywhere towards where we need to be when he's greenlighting new fossil fuel projects at a faster rate than Trump. So we told that to all these 80 and asked what the response was. Um, this was actually, I think the day after he signed on to the Willow project. And so it was very timely, and we demanded that he keep his campaign promise and end new drilling on federal lands, in his own words, period, period, period. So that was our demand. Ollie Zaidi seemed to be pretty stumped. He tried to talk to us and continued to tout lies. Like, he told me straight up to my face that Biden ended a, a mountaintop removal. That's literally not true. <laughs> um, so... Yeah, that was another big wake-up call, and I was like, wow, okay, this works. We're getting them on the record. We can show the world that the Biden administration is is lying about what they're doing for climate and that that won't fly, like, for any of us. Um, so we disrupted Ali Zaidi. We had our launch um, fundraiser with Bill McKibben as a keynote speaker, which was so inspiring, and then... Oh gosh, I don't even, I couldn't put them in timeline order, but some of the ones that like really stand out to me, um, we disrupted the Politico Energy Summit with Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm. Um, she was not ready for that. 
and we disrupted her again in Detroit, Michigan, um, where she was speaking to the Detroit Free Press Breakfast Club, and she literally was on camera saying, I would join them um, in action and and admitting, basically, to, to a lot of the faults of, of climate action taken by uh, the president, which is just wild. Um, so... I disrupted Senator Manchin uh, at a talk about permitting reform hosted by Semaphore and the host, Steve Clemens, who's also, I think, like the main editor at Semaphore, he was screaming at the back of my head to get off my stage, get off my stage, as I'm just trying to explain what has happened in West Virginia and and how Manchin is so culpable in so much of that. And I tried to ask Manchin, I said, I went on a 23-day hunger strike for your bill, Freedom to Vote Act, but you haven't met with us. You say you'll speak to West Virginians. Why won't you speak with me? He looks me dead in the eyes and hears all of that. And he gives me a little smirk and walks away. Oh, gosh. If if anything lit a fire underneath me (laughs) out of all these drug actions, it was that one because... Geez, I mean, the mask came fully off, and I think that's what I really appreciate about our strategy and the actions we've taken, is that these people go mask off when you confront them in such a direct way, in such a non-violent way, that when you see them react with such violence or, like, just dismissal, you're like, whoa, like, you are the same person who will get up on your pulpit and say you love the First Amendment so much, and then you see it in action, and they do not. They do not like our free speech very much when we're speaking truth to power. Um, so I don't know what the original question was, but that was my rant. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm speaking with Riley Haught, uh, who is a founding member of uh, a youth-led climate organization called Climate Defiance. And, um, you know, it's... I feel like there's so many groups. I mean, this other youth group that came up, you know, right around uh, when Trump was elected, which was um, Sunrise. Uh, I guess it was just Sunrise. And then each each local or state had its own. Like there was some in, in uh, Connecticut and, and all around the country. And, you know, they were somewhat uh, taking direct action, nonviolent direct action and sitting in. And so on. they sat in at Pelosi's office way back, you know, in 2018. Um, but I feel like you, you all have sort of gone another step in terms of just really trying to shut down uh, the apologists for, you know, for the current system. And I'm, I'm wondering, I mean, to me, it's an absolutely rational response to the climate catastrophe that we're seeing every single day, you know, more tragedies are happening um, all around the world and very definitely in the U.S. Um, But, you know, there's also people who say, well, you know, you should try to dialogue with people. You shouldn't, you know, if you just shut them down, then you're never going to, you know, you're not going to be able to change minds. You know, that, that sort of argument. What do you say to that? Uh, I mean, I think that's a little misunderstood in, like, our intentions, maybe, if somebody were to say, you know, this isn't the way that you change people's minds and get the folks empowered to create change. Um, the, the intention behind the action, I think, if we're, if we're changing minds, 
it's going to be from everyday folks who aren't necessarily super engaged, but they recognize the system's not really working for us, and they see Biden talking about climate change, which is huge, right? And they assume, like, okay, well, these crazy radicals are going to push more people to vote for Trump. That is absolutely not our goal or intention. And, like, I think to, to what you named about, like, Sunrise and their strategies, like, I think for a long time we've been playing defense for so many issues that are related to environmental justice. We've always been on defense mode. And it's gotten to the point where, like, generation after generation is saying like oh my gosh the young people are going to save us the young people are going to save us and i think the only way we can really do that is to play offense and and figure out okay ali zaidi he used to be a lawyer for a coal company and he's speaking at this think tank that's funded by fossil fuels why isn't nobody doing anything about this let's do it you know so i think like playing offense is a is a great strategy on our part because it, it highlights these things that like a lot of people don't even recognize are going on um the ways that the Biden administration is greenwashing and greenlighting new projects um and if people aren't obviously outraged about that then i don't think it really inspires anyone else to action because it's so easy with the 24-hour news cycle to just get that brushed under the rug so i mean we're generating new media about the issue and starting new conversations about the issue and there's no better time for that than right now so yeah you certainly have um generated a lot of media coverage including you know in the washington post and the new york times and as well as you know more sort of left uh outlets yeah well that's you know that's where that argument goes that if you're if you're so down on what biden is doing and, you know, he has green-lighted more fossil... He definitely has an all-of-the-above energy strategy, like just like Obama did, even though he says, you know, he's all about uh, addressing climate change. But on the other hand, um, the Republican Party is putting out... It's I don't know if it was meant to be out to the public, but anyway, it's been out to the public that um, they have a... They have a strategy basically to roll back all the good things that Biden did do. Um, and there you know, definitely have been some important things that he's done relative to the climate. So um, you don't think that what your group is doing would turn people off to Biden. And then I mean, they probably wouldn't vote for Trump, but they just may decide not to vote, which could also help Trump, I suppose. Is that that's not a concern of your group? At the end of the day, the concern of our group is is the future viability of the planet that we live on and so when it comes down to voting for politicians like i think our generation is fully aware that the bipartisan system does not work for us and like this is just speaking for my own you know political viewpoints but but just on an organizational level like no matter who is in a position of power, like no matter who is the president, whether that's Republican or Democrat, we're going to be going just as hard. Um, you know, if, if this was also Trump, like if it's 2023 and Trump had gotten reelected, like we'd still be here. We would be targeting Trump's cabinet officials. You know what I mean? Like, so I think I, we're not very concerned about that, to be quite honest with you. I, I mean, I am concerned. Like, I, I would never want to see another Trump presidency. And uh, to be honest, I would love to see somebody more progressive than Biden. Maybe that's a pipe dream. But I don't think 
in in the reality of what we're facing with climate change, there's any time to to whine about potential votes lost when most people are feel like are more aware than we give them credit for. And I think they're stabbing themselves in their own foot by by Republicans. I mean, by still using this like drill baby drill perspective, um, especially when we know Gen Z is now like the largest potential voting block if we just get out and vote. Um, and so I think generating new action, new direct action, it also shows the youth electorate that we're fired up and fed up and we want to do something about it. So for somebody who doesn't necessarily feel strongly enough to I really appreciate that. And I think it, it, you just described something that I think is very prevalent among younger people who you know, have a very different perspective on life on this planet than those of us who aren't going to be around as long as you are. So I, I just um, I wanted to just reintroduce you. I'm speaking to Riley Haught, who is one of the founding members of a youth-led climate organization called Climate Defiance. Um, and I know you've been based mostly, at, at least the actions I've heard about have almost all been around the D.C. area. I know you went out to Michigan for one or two of them. But um, tell, and then I, I saw an email from somebody who's starting a new group, I guess, in Boston. But do you have groups around the country yet? And, and are there actions happening all around or in certain other areas you could you could tell us about? Yeah, I mean, we've got folks around the country, um, you know, groups, I, I would say, are still kind of being fleshed out in how our vetting system is being put together so that we can grow. We're a pretty small, scrappy group, and like you mentioned, most of our actions have been in D.C. because that's just where um, most of the folks in climate defiance are based, and we have people in, you know, Chicago, I'm in Pittsburgh, people in New York, L.A., um, people who are, you know, working with other groups as well, but want to help throw down on like some spicier direct actions of climate defiance or, you know, in works with us. And so um, we're, we're trying to figure out right now, like how we want to safely build up our group so that we don't have like, you know, infiltrators. We have all heard about COINTELPRO. And so, um, yeah, we're just trying to learn the safest uh, way to grow. So right now I wouldn't say we have like, specific regional groups but we're working towards that because we know that there's a lot of interest in uh, growing our numbers for these direct actions right and I know a lot of your actions um, they were very disruptive but they did not result in arrests or injury but I know a few have and is that more recent do you think that the authorities are starting to clamp down more as as your actions have continued can you talk about that I think you were hurt in one of the recent actions right yeah yeah um well let's see we face violence from private security um or just security forces i don't think we fully know like who they were representing at both of our secretary of energy grand home actions so both in detroit and at the politico energy summit in dc uh the first one at the energy summit i think it was our group was a little bit like scattered throughout the room so it was just easier for, for security to be like tackling folks one by one. Whereas in our other actions, you know, we had all been grouped together and linking arms and trying to keep ourselves safe. And um, so we just, I think kind of made ourselves like easier for, for private security who was already ready to get violent, to get violent with us. And then in Detroit, gosh, 
we were just trying to walk past a couple security people who were on the stairs. Uh, they did not like that very much. And so once again, like before we had a chance to link arms, hold a banner, sit down, um, and use our kind of body weight to make it harder for them to like attack us individually. We did not have time for that because there was just private security coming from all directions. Eventually police showed up and they were watching it happen. And I heard a private security force person say, why won't you do something? Can you remove them? And a police officer said, no, I can't do that. And I just thought that was like really weird. I didn't, I, I don't understand what these private security forces think they have the power to do because they really, I don't think it's legal to be assaulting people, especially people who are announcing like, I'm nonviolent, I'm peaceful. I will walk with you. You just let me walk with you. Um, as they're literally dragging people across the floor by their ties, by their ears, like, throwing people down staircases. That was certainly terrifying. Um, I left with bruises, at least eight bruises. My entire upper forearm was covered um, in just a massive bruise, like so many collars. And uh, yeah, I was I was a hot mess after that action for, <laughs> for about a week, but I took some time off to rest. Uh, and then at a couple more recent actions, they've been in federal buildings, so at the Capitol, um, and then there was a confrontation with the Commerce Secretary, Gina Raimondo, and both of those ended in arrests, um, and I believe the Gina Raimondo one, they also faced violent security forces, but I wasn't there, so I can't really speak to like the play-by-play of it, um, but it has been more recent, and has definitely been more escalated in scenarios where it's like a high up, you know, cabinet member um, or in a federal building. Those two things definitely elevate the risk. And we accept that as the risk we take. We are, you know, nonviolent to our core. And so we will never react to violent security in any way other than like maybe to cover our, our faces or like get in a protective position. But like, yeah, it's, it's been a lot to process, and, and we're also, you know, in the works of really trying to flesh out our best safety and security measures uh, to keep ourselves as safe as we possibly can as we enter potentially violent situations as a nonviolent group. Yeah, that's interesting to see how some of that, you know, the violent response is just, you know, like in the civil rights movement, the nonviolent young people were really brutalized, and, you know, it was just... Uh, but, you know, it, seeing that other people around the country, seeing that actually had a profound impact. So um, maybe the same will happen. We're almost out of time, but I, I also wanted to make sure that everybody listening knows that even though you're youth-led, you welcome participation from older people, right? Oh, yeah. We are youth-led by an intergenerational movement. That is how we would describe ourselves. Great. And um, is there, we just have, you know, a minute or so left. Is there anything else um, that we didn't talk about that you think it would be good for listeners to know about climate defiance? I feel like we've covered most of the bases. Um, I don't know. I mean, fun fact, we've done over 20 actions since our inception in March, and we're only going to keep getting spicier. So if you're interested in taking this kind of confrontational direct action, our website is climatedefiance.org. We also have social media, um, TikTok, Twitter, and Instagram are all at Climate Defiance. And yeah, looking for more books to throw down anytime. So please sign up on our website and then uh, 
Um, we also have like a volunteer interest form that you'll get an email about as well if you sign up. So I think that's everything that I wanted to say. Okay. Um, well, thank you so much. I've been talking yeah, with Riley Hot, who is a founding member of Climate Defiance, and I hope people do check out your website. And just want to thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, you've been listening to The Forest and the Trees, Global and Local Perspectives on the Environment, with your host, Melinda Tuhus. Tune in on the second Saturday of every month at 9.30 a.m. here at WPKN 89.5 FM for more environmental news you can use.